Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, June 28, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, June 26, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,875, that's 14875. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,876, that's 14876. This morning, A Vision for You presents the Double Whammy. Step one states... We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. The big book's approach to step one is what Dr. William Silkworth, the doctor who wrote the two letters found in the doctor's opinion, called the double whammy. Put simply, we have an abnormality of the body. He called it an allergy of the body, which means that once we start eating certain substances, certain kinds of foods, we develop cravings which overpower us. And we have an abnormality of the mind. He called it a mental obsession, which means that even if we stop eating those foods, our mind persuades us that we can return to eating those foods all over again and again and again and again. Thus, we can't stop once we start, and we can't stop from starting again. Yes, indeed, we have what Dr. William Silkworth called the double whammy. Joining us today to elaborate on our twofold illness, our two recovered compulsive overeaters. Speaking about the allergy of the body will be Pete B. from outside Philadelphia. And speaking about the obsession of the mind, Joe M. from Minneapolis, Minnesota. And it's with great appreciation that I welcome Pete B. to begin. Thank you, Leah. You pretty much summed it up. I think I'm just going to pass. No, All righty then. <laughs> uh, good morning, everybody. My name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by God's grace and mercy, as Leia said, and I'm out, I'm uh, in Pennsylvania, actually in Dallas, Texas right now. But in any case, uh, I appreciate the opportunity to share on this aspect of recovery, right? And, 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 and aside from my relationship and connection to the God of my understanding, I look at this aspect of my disease as probably being the most significant. It's the thing when I, read, when I look back in my, in my experience, it's the, it's the element of my disease that has taken me out more so than any other element, in my, in, in my opinion. Um, you know, and it's funny when you get asked to do these things and, you know, I... You know, I immediately start envisioning, you know, notes and notes of, you know, pages and pages of notes and, you know, charts and graphs and movies and websites to point people to, right, and get all prepared and, you know, really want to be the, the best big book ninja that I can be, right? And then life happens, right? And, you know, so here I sit with a couple of notes and I'm going to do my best, right? And, and you know, like, that, that's not because I'm an addict, 
right? That, that, that's just because I'm human, right? I, I, you know, I think we hear all the time, there's such a desire to fit in and to do whatever, and for whatever reason, we want to call out these characteristics as being unique to compulsory eaters. Sometimes we pick up these concepts, embrace these sayings without really thinking about them or even checking to see what the text or the literature says relative to them. Right? We're so quick to blame this condition on, you know, all of the defects and all of the dysfunction in my life. But when you think about it, really, the condition can be boiled down to just our natural instincts becoming out of proportion and, and uh, used in a manner the way they weren't supposed to be used. Right. And in the doctor's opinion on page XXX, it says we have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomena of craving. This phenomena, as we have suggested, Maybe the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we suggest is entire abstinence. Before I go, before I go any further on that subject, I just want to express really that I have a sincere desire to be helpful here. And what I intend to share is what I understand and interpret this text to read and mean. And I, and I, and I hope I'm, I'll be clear in letting you know where I'm expressing my opinion versus what our literature actually says. Because I think too often we take things out of context or share what we actually want the literature to say versus what it actually says. And, 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 and you know, what I also want to express is that I'm here to learn first, man. I'm here to learn, like... Like, I'm here to learn rather than present something. And if there's something that I share today that you feel contradicts what our literature says or what the program of recovery has to offer, by all means, speak up. Like, don't even, you don't have to wait for me to be finished. Hurt my feelings. Set me straight. Love me enough to actually help me rather than make me feel good because this is truly a life and death endeavor for me. And I wish above all else to be of maximum service to God and my fellows. So what, do, so, so what does it mean, uh, allergy of the body, right? So let's just talk about, um, just for one minute to talk about the difference between the allergy of the body and obsession of the mind. The obsession of the mind is the mental aspect of my disease. It tells me that this time it's going to be different. You were making too big a deal about the issue in the first place. You're not as hopeless. You know, I was... I've, every time I've doc, darkened the doors of Overeaters Anonymous, on day one, I was a hopeless, helpless, chronic compulsive overeater willing to go to any lengths for victory over my disease. I'll do anything. I'll say anything. I'll be anything you want me to be. Right? Then day four or five, right, I'm thinking to myself, man, I, I might just be a hard eater. Right? Day six or seven, I'm thinking to myself, well, I, I'm, I'm a moderate eater. And, you know, day eight or nine, you know, I'm, I'm putting an extra ounce or two of protein or, or something into my, in my meal plan. And, you know, six, you know, to three, four days after that, you know, I'm deciding that, you know, maybe a potato chip is still a potato. It's still a vegetable, right? And, and, and then next thing you know, you know, Ben and Jerry's has some fancy fruit in their, in their uh, or, or substance in their ice cream. And I, I think I could take some of that, right? Like, you know, I have a mental problem that, that will not go away. And it causes me to rationalize and justify why it's okay to use food as a solution to whatever it is that's impacting me, good or bad, right? I, I always appreciate on the line when you hear people say, well, I, I, that would cause me to eat. I ate over anything 
anything. I ate when I felt good. I ate when I felt bad. I ate when I was lonely. I ate when I was in a crowd. I ate over everything because what I had going on in my body, I was ingesting these substances and they, they called out for me and dominated my thinking once I, once I had them in my body. And they're so powerful and so, you know, manipulated by doctors and scientists and food companies that this, this allergy, this reaction, it stays with me throughout the day, right? Like it stays with me, you know, for days and days and days. And so I, 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 I would always find myself returning back to using those substances. Yeah. The doctor's opinion says the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it injurious, they cannot differentiate the true from the false. The true. Can I use this safely without impacting my life? Right. And, and it says that we, we, we seek the sense of ease and comfort, right? Look, ease and comfort does not cause the phenomena of craving. The allergy is a biological response to certain substances that cause the phenomenon of craving, right? It's not, doesn't come from taste. That might, that may start the process, but really what happens in my in my mind is before I even ingest those substances, you know, I used to watch a lot of cartoons on Saturday when I was a kid. And I always used to remember that they'd have a, they'd have like a ball at the top of the hill and then it would start rolling and it would get bigger and bigger. And like houses would get sucked into it and it'd get bigger and bigger. Like that's the, that's the, 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 the mental obsession, right? Once it starts, right. There's no thinking through it, right? No human power can relieve that. No, no, there's no thinking through that. Right? No weed, no posse, no tribe, no herb or no, no herd is going to relieve that mental obsession. No intervention will send that ball back up the hill, right? For that, for this, we need grace. But that my, my co-presenter my, my co, uh, is going to talk more about, but I had some time to fill, so I just wanted to just touch on that, right? But allergy of the body, that, that's the physical aspect of this disease. Right? The doctor says that once it's established, it only gets worse, never better. There's no, there's, there's no returning to normal in this regard, right? Like there's no promise in the big book that says that I am going to revert back. The physical condition is going to revert back, right? You, it, it, the, 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 the allergy can't be treated with abstinence, right? It could be, we could be, it'll be relieved, Right. We can only be relieved of the phenomenon of craving by not ingesting or engaging in the behaviors that cause it. So, and here's the other thing, nothing other than ingesting these substances or engaging in these behaviors can give me the phenomenon of craving, right? I can't get the phenomenon of craving from the buildup of human emotions. I can't, you know, I can't get the phenomenal craving from not calling my sponsor or not or for, or for failing to get on the 10 step train. Right. Like I, I can't and not, not from fail. I can't even get the phenomenal craving from 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 failing to enlarge my spiritual life. I can only get the phenomenon of craving if I ingest or I take or I engage in these behaviors that uh, that cause them. Right, and when when I think of the term al- the ter- the term allergy, I, I you know I always like to call out pages, right? Because I think that makes me sound smart. But again, like I'm talking to you know how many people on here? They're all big book ninjas, and they can tell me what page things are way more than I can. But I wrote it down, so I'm just going to say. So it first comes up in page XXVI, 
And the doctor, right, the prominent physician, right, this guy, this doctor who writes this is like the Dr. Oz of drug and alcohol condition of his time. He's the most prominent physician of, the time, of, of his time. And he writes about the, the allergy of the body. He says that we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcohol on these chronic alcoholics, chronic, that's a key term, is the manifestation of an allergy, that the phenomena of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. You know, what I've learned about the allergy of the body is that no one can diagnose it, right? Nobody can tell you, your sponsor can't tell you what your alcoholic foods are. Your alco- he can't tell you what your, she can't tell you what your alcoholic ingredients or behaviors are. Right. There's no there's there's no there's no diagnosis. It's something that this is this is where gut level honesty is required in recovery. In my opinion, in all the other areas. It's optional. It's optional. This is where the gut level honesty is absolutely required. Because I have to sit down and get quiet with myself and I have to think about the reaction. I have to think about what goes in them on in my body and in my mind when these substances are ingested. The instruction that I got from my sponsor, after being sober and Alcoholics Anonymous for 20 years and wondering to myself, why, if I'm doing so good, how come I'm feeling so bad? Like thinking that, you know, perhaps I was making too much of my drinking problem that perhaps I should go maybe, maybe, maybe rely on some external substances, right? Like I think I, I, I could, I could remember, you know, my, my morning practice, which I had before I got, before I came to Overeaters Anonymous and I have today was always to sit down and ask the God of my understanding for strength and guidance and inspiration and direction. And I have this idea that I believe what I was inspired by the God of my understanding of how I wanted to behave, how I wanted to feel and how I wanted to look. Yet at the same time, I kept on using these substances that, that, that incomprehensibly demoralized me and caused me to act incongruent. I think that's a word inconsistent with these values and these visions and this guidance that I was receiving. So I was restless, irritable, and discontented on a regular basis, but not drinking. I had a spiritual experience. I had a connection with the God of my understanding. I didn't fall short. You know, I was, I was doing the best I, I was doing the best I could and I was sober, but I was miserable. And the reason why is because I kept on going back to these substances and I kept on going back to these behaviors that caused the phenomenon of craving. And once I, once the phenomenon of craving kicked in, I was, I was beyond human aid and I would just continue to use them and, and, and act in conflict to where I thought the God of my understanding or how I thought the God of my understanding would have me act. You know, so I had to, so, so my process and the instructions I received was I had to get, I had to get quiet. I had to think about and really identify these substances that cause the phenomena of craving. The hard ones, right? The ones that, the ones that, you know, to a certain degree, you know, are on other people's okay list, right? You know, like the nuts and the chips and the, you know, the, the things, right? Like the things that I, I, I know I have to give up, but I don't want to give up. 
And sitting down and arriving at that list, right, I became aware that these are the things that under no, cer- no circumstance, under no condition, under no, under no, you know, special occasion, am I able to use them safely. Right, I was able to distinguish the true from the false. I cannot use these, I cannot use these substances in any quantity whatsoever. You know, I think the reading begs the question, what is a chronic alcoholic? What is a chronic compulsive overeater? You know, and that goes beyond this allergy element. So I just wanted to say a couple of things about that. Like, they're going to explain that in the book further on in chapter two, and there is a solution. And specifically, it starts on page 17, and on, uh, or it starts on page 17. On pages 20, 20 and 21, it'll tell you the difference. It'll tell you the difference. It'll help you, it, it'll help you identify if you are actually a compulsive overeater of the variety for which this program is required. Right, because you can come in here and be a hard eater or a moderate eater or just be, you know, overweight and have a problem and get a meal plan and follow it and work the steps, incorporate a, 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 a you know, a, a, a practical program of, of action, right? Come up with a new code of morals and a better philosophy of life, and you're, you'll feel better. But that doesn't mean that you're a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety. We have, to, we have to come to that gut-level honest conclusion before this can be successfully implemented. So I'm just going to say this. There are several outstanding special editions on A Vision for You that can help you identify that, right? Like you can access those. One that I love and I appreciate and really made the difference in my, in, in, in my recovery is Kim G's presentation on 12-20-2015 titled, What is a Real Compulsive Overeater? You know, uh, uh, Melissa C. did a really great special edition on, you know, the, the, the excuses and the things that we, that, that we do that, that helped me really relate to, to this disease and understand what I was dealing with. See, my, my, you know, my opinion is, is that, that, that this, this condition, you know, while it, while it doesn't present as, for, for me personally, it didn't present as devastating as my drug addiction and alcoholism, it, it, it's devastating because it, you know, we, the book talks about the bedevilments, right? And this, 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 this idea that I just, I, I can't be one in a family. I can't be a worker among workers. I can't be, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm fighting battles in my mind because of the, because of the, I'm preoccupied because of the phenomenon of craving. I can't be, I can't live consistent with my values, consistent with the, with, with the aspirations and the ambition that the creator gave me because I'm using these substances that are taking over my body. And what I can tell you is that, you know, by, by God's grace and mercy, this, this merciless obsession has been removed. You know, I, I, I walk a free man today. Like I, I am, I am, I am able to persevere and trudge through challenges and issues that for me blow my mind. I'm currently in a situation like to be able to go through those abstinent and recovered to be able to march through that. It blows my mind. And I know that by God's grace and mercy, if I continue to seek that guidance, that, that and continue to seek that direction, that no, absolutely no circumstance is insurmountable. I serve the highest of powers, and, I'm, and, and I know that I can walk through anything victoriously, and with that, I'll pass.
Thank you very much, Pete B. I now welcome Joe M. to speak on Obsession of the Mind. Thank you, Leah. Uh, can you hear me okay? I hear you well. Okay, great. Hi, my name is Joe, and I'm a compulsive overeater. Um, uh, thank you, Pete B. I was writing fast and furiously to take notes while you were talking. I really appreciate that. Big Book Ninja, never heard of that. Love it. Um, I also, I describe myself as a big book enthusiast. Um, love the big book. I love recovery. My name is Joe. I'm a compulsive overeater. And I'm just going to qualify for just a, a couple of minutes before I go into the obsession of the mind. I come from a very long and very tortured history with compulsive overeating. Um, I've been a compulsive overeater ever since I was a kid. And it did nothing but get worse. At the, at the very bottom, uh, my last bottom, I was uh, at 254 pounds. Uh, that's about 120 pounds heavier than I am now. Which, and I tell you that so that you know the kind of eating, the amount of eating that I was doing to cover up all the spiritual pain I was in. Uh, I couldn't get up out of bed very easily in the morning because I had food hangovers because I was binging every night. I uh, couldn't get up and downstairs very easily. couldn't get in and out of my car very easily. I couldn't run when I was in a hurry. Food was taking up all of my mental space. I would be at work and I would be obsessing about when can I when can I get off work and so I can go get my you know my trigger foods. My car was a binge mobile. I had stashes of food uh, in my purse, in my dresser drawer, uh, in my car, in my glove compartment, at my desk at work. Um, Anything and everything I thought were, was setting me off. I didn't yet understand the nature of my condition, but I can tell you this, I was suffering tremendously with compulsive overeating. It got worse and worse and worse and worse. There would be periods of control, dieting, controlled eating, paid weight loss programs, eating disorders clinic, uh, self-help, uh, writing out, you know, writing in journals, going to therapy, um, that type of thing um, to try to get a handle on it. I couldn't get a handle on it. Sometimes I would diet down to a, you know, a normal weight very temporarily and I would go back and it would just be a, a worse explosion than ever and my eating got even worse. Um, and it wasn't until I came to Overeaters Anonymous that I was introduced to a group of people who were just like me. And while in the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous, I was introduced to a program of recovery that has led me through a transformation of mind and of thought and, and attitude. And uh, I live a very different life today internally. My external life is also different. My internal life is really different. Thanks to this program, um, I consider the big book, it is my design for living, and I'm very happy to be here with you today. I've been asked to talk about the obsession of the mind. Um, Pete um, outlined very well the allergy of the body, um, and so this is the second aspect of my condition, uh, which is the obsession of the mind. And I do have the allergy of the body. There are substances that when I put them in my body, I cannot... I cannot control what happens after that. Uh, but even when I'm off those foods, even when I am abstinent, I've got this other thing called obsession of the mind. This obsession is so powerful that it will overtake every good intention, every act of willpower, every piece of knowledge I have about myself, every sting of pain I ever felt about my overeating, my worry about my health, the threat to my life. By shortening my life expectancy, the obsession will take all that over. The big book has a chapter called More About Alcoholism which posits, which, which presumes that there's, they've given you something about alcoholism before we get to this chapter, and now this is more about alcoholism. I like to focus on the chapter more about alcoholism whenever I'm talking about the obsession of the mind because of the way they detail it um, in this chapter. I think it's just beautifully done. Um, if I were to uh, retitle this chapter, I would call it more about powerlessness. Um, the chapter details the insidious nature of my condition, which is the obsession of the mind. 
the chapter of morbid alcoholism has, as I see it, uh, or what I can recognize in it at this point in my recovery, two elements. One is how powerlessness functions, and two, the only effective response to it, um, or how the mental obsession functions, and the only, uh, res- uh, the only effective response to that. So if you're wondering whether you have the obsession of the mind, you may know whether you have the allergy of the body, and okay, if maybe you don't know yet whether you have the obsession of the mind, whether you whether what you are experiencing, it actually is that an obsession of the mind. I would, what I would suggest to you is to read this chapter, and see whether these people's obsession for alcohol describes how you think about food. There are three stories in this chapter that show really clearly how the mental obsession functions. The man of 30, Jim, and Fred. Now, all of them are sober at the start of each of their stories, but they're all drunk at the end of their stories. And one of them is dead at the end of his story. That's the man of 30. Uh, These stories are examples of how individual people succumb to the desire to drink again. And they've got, you know, different circumstances in their lives, but the mental obsession functions the same for each of them. The mental obsession functions uh, with them. It comes on while they are sober. So they're off of the alcohol. I'm out of the food. But something whispers to me. So, so let's start with these stories in, in the big book. So they're sober, and then the obsession comes and whispers in their ear. In the case of the man of 30, what's the whisper in his ear? Hey, you know what? I've had a long period of sobriety. I've been off the liquor for 25 years. I'm retired. I've had a happy and successful business career, and I've earned the right to drink again. So that's how it comes to him. In the case of Jim, it comes to him, you know what? I'm going to stop at a place where they have a bar. Now, supposedly he's not thinking of drinking at that point, but he stops at a place where he knows there's a bar. And then he thinks, you know what? supposedly he's not thinking about drinking, but then all of a sudden he says, oh, well, a little whiskey in my milk won't hurt me, especially since it's on a full stomach. So that's how it comes to Jim. And in the case of Fred, it comes to him by saying, you know what, a couple of highballs before dinner would be just fine, especially because I've had a successful business trip and there's not a cloud on the horizon. So that's how the obsession comes on them. How many times and in how many ways did that voice whisper in my ear? You know what, Joe, you've lost 20 pounds. You have earned the right to have dessert. You know, you can have just one. That's not going to hurt you. Just one isn't going to hurt you. You see other people taking one. Go ahead and join in. You know, it's not like you're putting butter on it, Joe. You know, if you have a plane, that should be just fine. You know what? Just have the small version of it. You don't have to get the jumbo version. Just have the small version. You know what? Just get the fried version. Don't don't get the, I'm sorry, just get the baked version, not the fried version. Someone's offering it to you. You don't want to hurt their feelings, do you? You know, if I work this, if I eat this now, I can work it off later. It should be okay if I eat this and I count it as a protein. You know, I said I wouldn't eat tonight, but there are those leftovers, and if I eat them, then they'll be gone, and I won't have to worry about it. And that's another, you know, that's another aspect of constantly. And then um, after I come into OA, the mental obsession continues in thoughts like, you know, that other person has it worse than I do. And she has to abstain from food X, but I'm not as bad as her. So I don't have to abstain from that. So comparing myself to someone else and thinking that I don't have to abstain just because I think that I'm different from somebody else while in Overeaters Anonymous. And so I have the same condition as the man of 30, Jim, and Fred. 
I have a mental obsession. And what happened to me is what happened to them. I got drunk. I got drunk on food. I could not stop the overeating once I started, and I could not stop the onset of the mental obsession. The mental obsession is a separately operating phenomenon that's beyond anything else I ever do. It operates under its own rules. It is not subject to my wishful thinking, my pain, my, my depression, my suicidal thoughts, anything. It's just this separately operating phenomenon. And I don't control the intensity of the thoughts. I don't control the variety of the thoughts. I don't control the duration of the thoughts. I don't control the frequency. I don't control anything about the mental obsession. The big book is very clear that the location of the core of the problem is in the mind. In passages like these, we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking, for obviously this is the crux of the problem. And what is crux? What does that mean? I looked it up in the dictionary. It means the decisive or most important point at issue. Here's another way to describe it. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? What sort of thinking dominates Joe who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first bite? They refer to this as a curious mental phenomenon. They also describe in this chapter the serious and repeated but failed attempts at control that we make. Countless vain attempts. Countless meaning there's so many I can't count. And that is true for me. Countless, I mean, you know, what would I want in thousands? The thousands and thousands and thousands of times that I tried to control this. Vain meaning ineffective. Doesn't work. They say we've tried every imaginable remedy. I've tried many imaginable, many imaginable remedies. Didn't work. We, it's, they say we use self-deception and experimentation. Yep, I did that too. Self-deception, meaning I'm lying to myself about the condition I have. And experimentation, you know, hey, I'll have, I'll have the baked version. I'll have, it, I'll have the thing without butter. Experimentation. They say we try to prove ourselves exceptions to the rule including for me, as I said, inside of Overeaters Anonymous. So, and what methods did I try? Well, you know, like I say, controlled eating. I tried paid, paid weight loss programs. I tried an eating disorders clinic. I tried self-knowledge. I tried attending OA meetings and becoming part of a fellowship while believing the steps were not for me. They call my mental condition a delusion. That is a really strong language. What does delusion sound like? Well, I thought I knew what that meant, but I looked it up in the dictionary. What does delusion mean? It means an idiosyncratic belief or impression that is firmly maintained despite being contradicted by what is generally accepted as reality or rational argument, typically a symptom of mental disorder. I have a mental disorder when it comes to food. And that is not overstating it. My whole history tells me that. So underneath this mental obsession is a spiritual malady. And it is the spiritual malady that feeds the mental obsession. The chapter says whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he has already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. So by inference, if I have lost the power to choose whether I will eat or not, the only solution left for me is a spiritual one. 
not a social one, not a psychological one, not a medical one, a spiritual one. It is a big pill to swallow to admit that I have a mental obsession. It is huge. You know, they say the truth shall set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And that was true for me. It was a, it was a tremendous blow to me to admit who I was. This is the hard truth about compulsive overeating. It will not yield to my attempts at mental control. I have no mental control. I only have a mental obsession, and the only remedy is a spiritual treatment. So when I have tried to control my mental obsession with more thinking, that's also a failure. When I recognize that I have, hey, there's a mental obsession coming on, and I try to outthink it, I try to think my way out of it, that's another, that's self-deception and experimentation. They talk about the only effective response to this, the mental obsession. What is that? It says we, they say we had to concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. So I'm, I have to concede to my innermost self this reality. It doesn't say we had to concede to our sponsors, to our fellow OA members, to our family members, to our friends, to our therapists, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. It says to our innermost selves. And that that is the first step in recovery. It does not say that the first step in recovery is to go to a meeting or get a sponsor or buy a book or go to a special event. Now, we do those things, and those things matter, but only insofar as they get us into an environment that gets us ready to make that admission. The chapter says, if we are planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservation of any kind nor any lurking notion that someday we will be immune to alcohol. They talk about the delusion has to be smashed, smashed into smithereen. They don't say smithereen. That's what I'm saying. They say smashed. You know, when something is smashed, it's broken up into a bunch of little pieces and can't be put back together again. Fred, in his story, he says the program of action, though entirely sensible, was pretty drastic. It meant I would have to throw several lifelong convictions out of the window. And he says, I never, he says, I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. And so I know for myself, I tried to assign these characteristics that I thought I had. I, I tried to apply the characteristics that I believed I had, and I tried to apply them to my problem. The characteristics that I thought I had and the qualities of my life, the realities of my outer life that I saw myself having. You know what? I've got a pretty good career. I'm supporting myself. I've got friends. Um, I live in the area that I want to live in. I have a decent living situation. None of those things had any effect on my mental obsession. You know, if you look in the stories of the man of 30, uh, Jim and Fred, you know, they had the same things. Okay, so a man of 30, he had been bone dry for 25 years. He was an exceptional man. He had, been, he had a successful and happy business career. But then he fell, he fell victim to a belief that a lot of alcoholics had, that his long period of sobriety had entitled him to drink like other men. 
And so how many times did I say that to myself? You know what? I've been off the food for a while now. I am entitled. Now, whether I use the word entitled or not, but the feeling of entitlement, of being able to go back in. How many times have I done that? And how many times did I do that while in Overeaters Anonymous? You know, um, sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, well, I have six months of abstinence. And I want to say, gosh, you know, that sounds really painful. Because the period of sobriety, the period of abstinence means nothing to the mental obsession. The period of sobriety by itself and in and of itself means nothing to the mental obsession. It doesn't listen to that. In the case of Jim, he agreed he was a real alcoholic, which, you know, they use the word agreed. That's not the same thing as conceding to our innermost self. I can agree with you that I'm a compulsive overeater. That doesn't mean anything. It's conceding to my innermost self that means something. He said he was in a serious condition. His family was reassembled and all went well for a time. That had no effect on his mental, on his mental obsession. You look at Fred. He's happily married. He has ch- promising children of college age. He has character. He has standing. His income is good. He's a partner in a well-known accounting firm. He has attractive personality. He had been depressed about his condition. None of that had any effect on his mental obsession. And so one of the questions I think that it's something I, you know, have asked myself along the way, and this is a question you can ask yourself. When you're talking to another compulsive overeater about your condition, what is it that you're actually seeking? Because when, you know, I, I talk to a lot of people in Overeaters Anonymous who are in relapse, and they say things like, I'm really unhappy about what I'm doing. I don't know why I do this. I've gained 30 pounds in the last six months. My marriage isn't very good. I've just come back from the doctor and I, he said I had, you know, my doctor said I, had a, I have a pre-diabetic condition. And so I hear them talking. I hear them talking out loud and stating facts. I hear them stating what I call data. Those are data points. That's not thing as conceding to our innermost selves that we are compulsive overeaters. It's not the same thing. My experience of conceding to my innermost self that I'm a compulsive overeater was done alone in the privacy of my own soul and I wasn't talking to anybody. Now, I'm not criticizing anyone for how they express themselves or where they're at in their journey. Certainly, I had to go through a lot of hell inside Overeaters Anonymous before I conceded to my innermost self. So I want to offer you something that I hope will be helpful to you because it's been helpful to me. Um, And I heard someone um, share about this who's in the nicotine recovery business. And uh, and he talked about the cycle that people go through when giving up, uh, if they're going to give up nicotine. And I think this cycle can apply to any any addiction or any major decision we have. Um, and it's this it's this it's this cycle or process. Uh, premeditation, meditation, prep, uh, preparation, action, and maintenance. Now we don't have maintenance in our program, really. We have, we have the maintenance of a spiritual condition, but that's done through growing in our spiritual condition. Premeditation, it's bothering me, but I'm not thinking about doing anything about it. Meditation, it's bothering me, and I'm thinking about doing something about it. Preparation, I'm actually doing preparatory work to get ready for action. Action is taking the action, and then maintenance is c- continuing that transformation so that we stay in the altered state. And so if you're in relapse, you know, you may be in the preparation stage. You may be getting ready for the action. Great. Welcome. We're glad you're here. 
um, and I hope for you that you move into action. So, um, so the uh, so the big book. I'll just wrap it up here by this chapter talks about um, what is it, what is our response, what is the effective response. It's the spiritual solution. At the end of the chapter, they say this once more: the alcoholic at certain times has no effective mental defense against the first drink, except in a few rare cases. Neither he nor any other human being can provide such a defense. His defense must come from a higher power. Thank you for listening, and I'll pass. Thank you, Joe M, for your presentation. Thank you for you both for outstanding presentations this morning. Pete B. and Joe M., their contact information will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so you'll need to stay tuned for that. We will now transition to question-answer segment. You can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Jason K. Melissa C. Rowena K. Marina K. Rowena K. Loretta H. Loretta H. Sandy W. Karen G. Sandy W. Who ended with G? Karen G. Karen G. Thank you. Okay, let's start with those. Jason K, Melissa C, Rowena K, Loretta H, Sandy W, and Karen G. Everyone, please mute, except for Jason K. Go ahead, Jason. Jason K, your turn. Hi, sorry about that. I thought I was unmuted. Um, in terms of obsession of the mind, we also hear some uh, concepts uh, related, like a peculiar mental twist or strange mental blank spot. Uh, I'm wondering how those, if those are, um, how you would define those in terms of are they the same as the obsession of the mind? Are they different? Is it another part of not having a mental defense? I'm curious to hear. Um, thoughts on that. Thank you, Jason. Joe M. Yeah, um, I think they're just, I think to me they're just the different words to describe the same thing. Okay, thank you, Jason K., for the question. Melissa C. Hi, Star- good morning. Yes, Hi, there you are. Thanks, thanks so much. First of all, that was amazing. Like I got so much out of both of both of these shares. Um, and um, but I have, and I don't know if this is a question that either of you can answer. I, I'm hoping. Um, I understand that the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence, and um, and I hear different things about how long a person um, has free of the food where the actual craving, the physical craving gets released, you know, gets relieved, and then it's maybe the mental twist that takes over. But the part that confuses me is um, in um, Dr. Bob's story, there's a part where it says that um, he did not get over his craving for liquor 
much during the first two and a half years of abstinence. And it was always with me. That's what he said. And I'm just wondering, uh, sometimes I come in contact with people who kind of say that same thing. They're like, I've done the steps. I'm living, you know, in 10, 11, and 12. I've been entirely abstinent, and I still have cravings for food. And I'm just wondering what, um, what either of you guys have to offer on that. Thanks. Thanks, Melissa. I'll, I'll chime in on that if you don't mind, Joe. I, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I'm aware of where it says that after the first 164 pages and after the doctor's opinion, and after the doctor's opinion, and, and I and I believe it's a misuse of the term because the 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 they they say that crave you know in the doctor's opinion it says the craving only occurs by ingesting these substances or engage what we say engaging in the behaviors that cause it. Right. So perhaps it's just, uh, you know, in my opinion, the misuse of the term. I think that we have uh, intense desires. We have things that we have we have we have circumstances that resemble the phenomena of craving. Right. We have strong desires. We have strong impulses. We have all of those things. But, you know, I believe what the, you know, Dr. Silkworth says, that, that, that what we have in common is that we, have, that, we, that we can't control this thing once we ingest those substances. And that's just, you know, if, if, if that's wrong and somebody wants to smarten me up, by all means do so. But that's just my position. Thank you, PP. Joe M., did you want to also respond to that? I, I mirror what, um, what PP said. I wouldn't have anything to add. Mm-hmm. Mhm. Okay. Excellent. Thanks, Melissa, for the question. Rowena K, your turn. Uh, hi, this is Rowena K. Um, my question is for Joe, and um, and thank you so much, both of you, for your presentation. Uh, I was just wondering, and I apologize if you covered it already, but um, you spoke about the um, having to admit to our innermost selves, you know, that we were powerless over food. Uh, paraphrasing there, but was there a moment, a specific moment in your recovery when you realized that, or was it more of like a process? Thank you. It was a process, uh, Rowena. I can tell you there have been a couple of moments within my process that I'll never forget. I remember being at a store. I was in Overeaters Anonymous, and I knew sugar was a problem, and I think I was I was I was mostly abstaining from sugar, but not in the way I am now. Like now, it's like it is so clear cut now. But I remember going into a bakery, and I was looking at all the baked goods that did not have sugar in them. And while I was standing there thinking about what I'm going to get and getting all excited about it, it it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh my God, I'm going for flour. It was this overwhelming, sobering feeling. It was an awful feeling. It, it, it just, it, it overtook me, this feeling. And it, it took another six months before I finally gave up flour. So that was one moment. I can tell you another moment um, where I was sobbing over the loss of sugar in my life, just sobbing over it, um, grieving um, because I was, and I was alone. And both, both times I was alone. I mean, the bakery, there was other people there, but I was alone inside myself and the sobbing over the loss of sugar. 
I'm never going to have sugar again. I'm never going to participate in, you know, this partic- you know, eating sugar with others at events and birthday parties. And I, I really sobbed. And these were both necessary moments for me. You know, nobody said that admitting powerlessness was going to be easy or fun, for heaven's sake, you know. Um, Fred, in his story, says it was a crushing blow. These were crushing blows. And I did not know when I was experiencing the crushing blows that that was necessary for me to then come out the other side of that and come into a, a, a world of freedom. But those were a couple of moments I can share with you. And if I could, Rowan, if you don't mind, I'd just like to also say, you know, we, we, we have to remember what concede means. It doesn't mean admit. Well, it's a, it, mean, it says admit something is true and or valid after first denying or resisting it, right? And, like, you know, I, I'll, be, I'll be honest, you know, my experience, I conceded to my innermost self that I was a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety after I ate two pints of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and the Ben and Jerry's ice cream was the convincer. You know, it was my experience made me concede. My experience made me surrender. It wasn't, you know, virtue. It wasn't, you know, that I had, you know, I I wanted to go in a different direction. I had to, I, I went to an experience that made me concede. And my, 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 you know, people have different thoughts about what, you know, what goes wrong in recovery. You know, the the next sentence says the delusion that we are like other people has got to be smashed. And in my opinion, that's where most of us fall off. I know for me, that's where I fell off is because I wanted, I, I wanted to think I was like other people. That guy eats nuts. Can I have some, right? Can I, you know, uh, 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 a, a, a French fries, a potato, that's a vegetable, right? Like I, I had the delusion that I am like other people had got to be smashed. And that's my two cents on that one. Thank you, Rowena K. for your question. Loretta H., your turn. Good morning, Leah and Pete and Joe. Thank you so much. It was awesome and just healing and informative. My question is, and somebody else, maybe I overthink things, which is normal for me because I have a disease, but um, I suffer from both the compulsive overeater and the anorexia, and with God's grace today, I am relieved of that, both obsessions. But I did not identify into the anorexia until four years into my recovery. And uh, I was on medication and realized I loved the idea of not being hungry. And my question is, did I break my abstinence? I identified in and then I went to a doctor and took action. Is that in any way a break? Because I was sharing with somebody this morning who something like that has happened to. And in my heart of hearts, I feel like I was still abstinent and the awareness was there, and God provided me with answers to it. So anyway, I'm hoping that makes any sense, and I'm hoping that, um, you know, you can answer this question for me. Thank you. And it can go to either one. Mm-hmm. Joe, I, 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 I just, I, what, I, what, I, what I would say is, uh, you know, what's the difference? 
We, we can't treat this like it's some kind of game or contest, right? We're talking about life and death here, right? Whether the abstinence was broken or it wasn't broken, it's not, abstinence is not a thing. It's not a body of anything. Abstinence is abstaining from the, the behaviors and the substances that cause the phenomena of craving. And if it didn't cause the phenomenal craving, well, now we've realized it does, right? Because we're, uh, remember, we said this gets worse, never better, both the mental and the physical. As we, as we develop, as we age, as we grow, the sensitivity to these substances and behaviors increases. And one day, something that's good, something that's on my meal plan may eventually become something that won't be on my meal plan. Does that mean that all the while I was eating it, I was not abstinent? No, it does. Like I said, this is not a game. It's not a contest. You know, there's, we don't walk around with, with numbers on our jerseys that tell you how many months or years or days that we have. Like, this is life and death. And the fact that we're recovered on the other side of it should be good enough. It's just something I feel strongly about, right? Like, we're not, this is not, you know, I, you know, I lost my absence. Like, really? Like, like it's not a it's not a body of anything it's an action it's 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 my it's what i have to do to stay alive to thrive to walk in the kingdom of the universe you know like to walk in the kingdom of the god of my understanding like it's just it's just it's you know it's 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 that it's that serious and that's all mm-hmm. well i can weigh in on this or a little bit um I think, Loretta, you know, your question, did you break your abstinence, that has to begin, that question has to begin with, what is your abstinence? And so um, I think, you know, I think it's important, it's been my experience um, and what I've seen in others to have a very clearly defined abstinence in the first place so that you know whether or not you are abstinent. And so, you know, I would suggest you go back to that question, what is your abstinence? Um, and then from there you can say, did I break it or not? That would be one thing. I think, too, I think you said you felt like you were abstinent. I don't think abstinence is anything that we feel. It's not intuitive. It's something that we plan for as the result of admitting powerlessness. So it's, you know, it's intentional and planned. Um, I don't take the position that behaviors cause a craving. Um, I believe Overeaters Anonymous, um, as, a, as a fellowship, as a broad fellowship, I think some of the, some of the uh, publication from the World Service Office um, includes behaviors. Um, I don't take that position. That's not my experience. My experience is that the only thing that causes the phenomenon of craving in my body is taking it in physically, actually eating something that triggers the phenomenon of craving, the substance itself, the physical substance. My behaviors don't cause that. My behaviors may be problematic for other reasons, but my behaviors do not cause the craving. So I'll pass. Thank you, Loretta H., for the question. Sandy W. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, and thank you, um, Pete and Joe, so much. This is definitely a podcast I'm going to be recommending to others. Um, My question is this. If you're, when you're working with someone who relapses, um, do you try to help them sort out if it was the allergy of the body or the obsession of the mind? And if so, how do you do that? Go 
so just to, we'll go in order again, I guess. Uh, you know, so so yeah, I do. You know, I I think I think it's important to you know when when uh, I I forget if it's Fred or Jim when they sit down and they and they, they talk to him and ask him and reviewed what they've done to date, right? And ask him, you know, what occurred. And he talked about failed to enlarge his spiritual life and or failing to enlarge his spiritual life. But yeah, I think you want to get you want to get uh, clarity on what it is that happened. Right. Like what it what it is that that uh, that caused you to make the sacrifice and whether or not it was the obsession of the mind or, or the allergy of the body. So to review what you know, what's be what what you're eating, how much of what you're eating, you know, what combinations of foods that you're eating. And so what it was, it was it was it the allergy or was it the mental obsession? And uh, and, you know, just getting just getting clear so that you can proceed and and hopefully um, get back on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would. I would ditto what what PB just said. I also will um, look at the food plan that the person is on now, because usually when they relapse, they've had a food plan, and I will review the foods that they're eating on that food plan. There may be substances within that food plan that may be giving them problems that they're not even aware of, and so I do that as well. Thank you. Thank you both so much. Thanks, Sandy, for the question, Karen G. Your turn. Hi, um, and thank you all very much for your service. This is Karen G. from New Jersey. Um, my question is related to something that Jill just said, and so I, I think I know it could be I've already gotten your answer, and maybe I need an answer from Pete, but I want to press it a little bit further because I'm new, newly recovered and starting to work with people, and, and it's it's not the first time that I've spoken to um, people who are struggling and, um, you know, are absolutely convinced that their behaviors are their physical allergy. And, of course, it is the way that the OA literature is written, and, and Pete, you even mentioned that as well. And, and you know, I also understand from, from people who are anorexic or bulimic that that is really behavior-driven, may, may not be substance. Um, related may or may not be substance related. So my my question is in working with others, um, you know, how how do I best help a person identify um, whether or not they have um, any substance allergies, physical allergies, um, as opposed to, let's say, a behavior that's not anorexia, but a behavior that's just simply overeating or eating in volume being the physical trigger. So that's a good question. Um, You know, it's my position that, like I said earlier, you know, you know, nobody can tell you what the substances are, right? It's not, it's not the sponsor's job. It's not even the nutritionist's job to tell you what the substances are that you're allergic to that cause the phenomenon of craving. It's the individual's job too. That's why, you know, it's not my job to give somebody a meal plan. That's usually the first question that people ask, right? What are you eating? What, you know, what does your meal plan look like? Right. The meal plan, the meal plan is different from abstinence. And there are, there are, there are, my meal plan happens to be made up of foods that I'm not allergic to. And that guidance, you know, for me, I asked somebody for who had some expertise in this area to provide it for me. But it's not my, it's not, you know, it, it, that, that's a, that's a, 
that's a nutrition thing, not a not a recovery thing for me, right? I had to, so I had to identify what those substances are and what the and what the and, and I tend to lean towards what what Joe said. It's like I I I'm you know I'm a little bit I'm a little bit it's a little gray for me, like you know the behavior aspect of this, but you know OA has it incorporated into into what they talk about, and and and, and so be it. So, you know my my um. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. So that's it. Go ahead, Joe. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, good question, Karen. Um, this is not a behavior modification program. This is a spiritual program to get you plugged into a power by which you can live. That's who we are. Um, if someone is looking for a behavior modification program, there are lots of those that are out there. And so part of my responsibility if I'm going to be working with someone through sponsorship, is to help them identify whether or not they're one of us. There's a group of people called compulsive overeaters. We are a group. It's up to, it's up to each individual person to decide whether or not they're one of us. I can't decide that for someone. I can't determine for someone else whether or not they're one of us. Um, but I can help them go through a process where to help them decide whether or not they're one of us. So one of the things that I do when I'm first working with someone is I go into the doctor's opinion with them. We take, you know, we take um, certain paragraphs in there and we discuss them. And so we'll go one paragraph at a time. And I'll say, you know, read this paragraph. And then I'll say, how does that apply to you? I, don't, I, I used to ask them, what does that mean to you? And what that elicited sometimes was like an academic answer. But the question I now ask is, how does that apply to you? Because I want to see, and, and helping them see, does it apply to you or not? And then I will talk about how the paragraph applies to me, and then I will share that with them. So that's one of the ways that I believe we can be helpful when we're working with someone new, is helping them, helping them to diagnose themselves. Because I can't diagnose them, they need to diagnose themselves. Um, but I need to be really clear with them that um, I'm not here to be what I have referred to. You know, I, I have a program friend who says, uh, she says, you know, I'm not here to be a diet buddy or a life coach. And that, that's my position as well. I have found a spiritual transformation that has freed me of a hopeless state of mind and body. If you want what I have, you can have it. And I'll be a tool in your toolbox to help you get it. So I'll pass. Yeah, and I just wanted to add to that. Uh, uh, that's what I meant to say. I just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> we are not a glum lot. <laughs> I appreciate the humor. Thank you. Thanks, Karen G., for the question. Who else has a question for Pete and Joe this morning? Kathy K. Kathy K. Nadia B. Nadia B. Suzanne G. Suzanne G. Connie T. This will be the final invitation for questions. Malky G. Malky G. Pam S. Pam S. Paula M. Paula M. Okay, that's a fine group. I've got Kathy K, Nadia B, Suzanne G, Connie T, Monkey G, Sam S, and Paula M. Okay, Kathy K, your Thank turn. You. 
Thanks, Leah, for your service, and thanks to both of you. What great shares today. Uh, really helpful. And I'm sitting here uh, reviewing my experiences with the steps and also my work with sponsees. And for me, the most challenging part is once people concede to their innermost selves that they've got this disease, how to help them move towards a spiritual solution. I found that difficult myself, having come to this program an agnostic, and uh, I find there's a lot of resistance to it among people that I sponsor. I, I would welcome your input on that. Thank you. Uh, you know, how to help them? I mean, I, mean, I, 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 would, I would instruct them to work the steps, to, to, to you know, these steps are spiritual in nature, which if practiced as a way of life will expel the obsession to eat and enable the sufferer to live happily and usefully whole. And if you have gone through these steps uh, and have not had a spiritual experience as a result of doing so, well, I suggest maybe you do them again, right? Because, you know, there, there really shouldn't be... Uh, there really shouldn't be a, you know, a sponsor's job, as Joe said earlier, we're, we're not life coaches and we're not, you know, dietitians and we're not diet buddies, right? We're, we are, we're essentially, if you think about, if you think about Bill Wilson in the Mayflower Hotel, he was faced with a proposition, either drink or go help somebody, right? And he was, so his objective was not to go help himself. I mean, it was not to go help Dr. Bob. His objective was to save his ass. And my job as a sponsor is to save my ass, not someone else's ass. And their job, their job as the sponsee is to go out and seek whatever resource, whatever guidance, whatever direction that their God of their understanding is leading them to, not to what my God of my understanding is leading me to. Right. And that's a, that's a, you know, that, that's an individual, that, that's an individual experience that we can help navigate. We can help, we can, we can be there, but regardless of whether or not that sponsor finds it or doesn't, is you know, it's not any business of the, of the sponsors. That, that's, that's the job of sponsorship. Mm -hmm. The role of sponsorship. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Well, I, yeah, ditto to what Pete said. And I guess I, I just, the only thing I would add is I, I guess, Kathy, I would ask the people who are resistant, what is the nature of their resistance? Because once you concede to your innermost self that you're a compulsive overeater, that naturally pushes you into wanting to know, well, how do, well what do I do now? There's, there's a sense of urgency to grab onto a solution. And so I would wonder, what, why would they resist grabbing onto a solution? If you're admitting that you're drowning in a river, why do you not want to grab onto the life raft that's being thrown to you? Uh, so I, I would ask them that question. That may help you um, to help them move forward. I'll pass. Thanks, Kathy Kay, for your question. Nadia B., your turn. Thank you so much, Leah. Good morning to both of you. Thank you so much. Joe, you said something that kind of triggered something in my mind. You said um, that our um, obsession is feeds on spiritual malady. And would you mind expanding, either of you, expanding on that? And is there a difference between spiritual malady and mental obsession? 
Well, what I said, Nadia, was that it's the spiritual malady that feeds the obsession, not the other way around. Um, there's something going on inside my, inside of me that is extremely disturbed. And that disturbance creates the mental obsession. And so that disturbance has to be addressed. That's why abstinence alone doesn't work for somebody like me. And so, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, how thoroughly I am abstinent or how long I've been abstinent if I'm not grabbing on to the rest of the steps, steps 2 through 12. I hope that answers your question. And 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 I'm I just like to respond and saying and I, and so so I'm just gonna you know put the cards on the table and let you know this is something that that I, that I think about often and I'm just gonna put this out there spiritual malady right malady implies disease right there's something wrong and I don't not, you know whether you're spiritually good or spiritually bad or whatever even if those terms are relevant like I don't know you know I don't. You could still be a compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety, whether or not your behaviors are bad or not. Like, you know, I, I, when I think of spiritual malady, I, I think of like the malady, the disease is I look to myself and others to solve my problem. And my and I and, and myself and others always failed me. And the malady was, you know, I had to I had to look to a power greater than myself that would restore me to sanity. And it, it didn't, it didn't have, it didn't, to me it has connotations of like, it's, it, you know, you were good or you were bad. Like whether or not I was good or bad, like I have this condition. I, 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 I am the, I believe I'm the source, I'm the source to solve all my problems. And at the same time, I'm the source that's causing all my problems. And I had to, and I had to go within myself and surrender and find the, find, and, and tap into a power that was going to, you know, put me on a path, if you will, right? To to live consistent with what I think that power and how that power would have me live and behave. And I just think that you know, um, I, I, that that whole that term spiritual malady. Like I have a I have a mind that tells me I should solve my problems, and I and I also have a mind that makes that causes all my problems, and with that, which is why I needed to and need to on a regular basis submit and turn my life and will over to care of the God of my understanding. Thanks, Nadia B., for the question. Suzanne G., star one to unmute. Suzanne G., Hi, sorry, I was unmuted. Sure, I'm, go ahead. Okay, I'm mean, muted, I'm sorry. Okay, so I got in um, maybe 20 minutes later in the call. I, I did hear the second uh, person who shared, and I want to thank her for that. Um, I have a question that I think about from time to time. I, I have been in OA for 36 years, abstinent for 30. I have not read the big book a lot lately. I've been reading other things. But my recollection in the big book is it, it does speak about, I believe it was Bill W. that said, if you, be, you know, if you try to help someone as a sponsor, um, in his case, not, you know, 
help somebody to stop drinking, in our cases, is steal them with the food. Um, if you can't help them, then you move on to the next person. If I am incorrect, please uh, let me know. But I guess the question is, is how long do you work with somebody who um, just continually wants to do it their own way and things just don't work out and they can't stay abstinent and you've done all you think you can do to help them? That's my question. How long do you stay with that person? I, I don't know if there's I don't know if there's one right answer or one wrong answer. I think it's each each situation is is uh, is different. You know, I I, I always I, I I find comfort in referring to the text of the program of recovery, and I just you know in my head I almost it's like a, as a general guideline. I like to think about you know they mentioned that they work with I, I always get these two mixed up, but I think they I think it was Fred or Jim. They mentioned that they work with them a half a dozen times. So, my, you know, I have like a kind of like a, a not a line in the sand so much as, yeah, maybe a line in the sand is a good description. I work with you half a dozen times. If I can't help, I can't help. Right. And, and, and uh, you know, like I said, again, the sponsor, the sponsor is not the source. The sponsor is not the source. And if it's not a good fit, it's not a good fit. And like, I don't, I don't think you can, I don't think that there's one right or wrong answer. It's just something, you know, we, we, we talk about every day about seeking guidance and direction, right, through prayer and meditation, and the right answer will come if we're continuing to work towards that ideal. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, to the question, um, I mean, I've got some, some guidelines that, that I and, you know, that I've been able to benefit from in terms of, uh, you know, either how long do I work with someone or under what circumstances do I continue working with someone. But really what it comes down to is the questions that, that I have to ask is, can I continue to be helpful to someone? So that's the first thing. Am I helping them? And two, is continuing to work with them benefiting my recovery? Or is it in some way undermining my level of serenity? Those are the two key questions that I have to ask to make that decision. I'll pass. Thanks for the question, Suzanne G. Connie T., your turn. Did you ask for Connie T.? I did. Okay, sorry, I was unmuting. Hi, this is Connie T., Recovered and South Central Pennsylvania. Thank you both for such a uh, great, great meeting. So very briefly, Joe, this was something that you had said, and I couldn't agree more, the conceding to the innermost self. I know for myself, I was in OA for several years, and I just, I didn't have the kind of recovery that I heard other people have. And one day, literally, I woke up, and it was, I was totally conceited. I knew I was screwed. And that is when I was able to get better. So my question is, when working with a sponsee, if they have not yet conceded to their innermost self, do they stay in step one until that happens? Or do you try to work steps with them and then it will come along? Or, you know, do, do you handle that any differently? Um, I, for years, I thought I was powerless, but I didn't concede to my innermost self until I did, you know. And uh, so I, I hope that question made sense. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, was there a question to Joe or to both of us? 
Oh, I don't care. Definitely for Joe because she talked about it, but I don't. But both answers are fine. Mm-hmm. Whatever works. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I just want to say, uh, yeah. I, I, you know, if you think about what you asked, right? And it says the first step in recovery is to is to concede to our innermost self that we are alcoholic and that the illusion that we are like other people has got to be smashed. If you haven't conceded, what's the sense of going to step two? Like, we're like, you know, you know, like again, again, this is not, you know, this is it's not about, you know, a, a new code of morals or a better philosophy of life here, right? Like, what's the sense? If you haven't conceded, why go to step two? Because you, you, why would you be willing to believe in a power greater than yourself if you haven't fully conceded that you have this condition? That's it. That's my own guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, you know, I don't work the steps with anyone. They're on the step that they're on, and I'm on step twelve. Um, so I, I, and I, I also don't take anyone through the steps. I don't have that kind of power. Gee, it would be great if I did. I don't take anybody through. They go through. And they use me as a tool, as a support uh, in their process to do that. Um, I have people do a set of writing assignments focused on step one when they're new. Um, they're highly accountable and transparent for what they're eating, and they commit that to me because my experience is my own experience with my own recovery and the way that I work with others is that all the spiritual principles that we are endeavoring to learn here come out in the food, you know, honesty, willingness, courage, humility, transparency, acceptance, that all comes through in the food, in someone's food. That comes, it's, that's true for me, and that's true for the people that I work with. So one of the ways of, I can't, I cannot, I can never declare that someone else has made the concession to themselves that they're a compulsive overeater. But what I can do is I can look at their behavior because once you concede or if you're in the process of conceding, it shows in your behavior. If you have not conceded, that also shows in your behavior. So I've got the behavior to look at. So that's what I got. Pat. Thank you, Connie T, for your question. Malky G. Hi, it's Malky G from New Jersey. Thank you so much for that very clear qualification. Um, I would like a little help um, sharing your experience. I find coming to conceding to your innermost self, step one, that I'm powerless over food and have an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind, definitely took time of a lot of experimenting. And then it comes to the point that I get to step one and I... Food is really not an option. I know in my gut gut that I am allergic to it, and food is not an option. And I work through the steps and start living in 10, 11, and 12. And my personal experience, I didn't, my spiritual awakening came, came just as slowly as my conceding to my innermost self around the food. There's a transition period when I conceded 100% to my innermost self, I'm allergic to food and it's not an option. But I don't yet have that living 
in the sunlight of the spirit. I'm living in it. I'm working towards it. And I feel it was a very, it's a very painful transition, very lonely, very painful, very scary that I'm really, really conceited about the food, but I'm not yet, I didn't yet grasp that way of life, of living spiritually. I'm working towards it. Can you share your experience about that transition phase? So, uh, my experience, my experience, I, I don't know if I had an experience if there was a transitional phase. I, you know, I, I, I think for a long time, you know, the, the book says that we are unable to distinguish the true from the false, right? I, I think for a long time, and I, still to this day, I kind of base how well I'm doing on my feelings. And, and I can't think of another group of people that have misused feelings that, you know, more than compulsive overeaters, right? Like we, 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 we just, you know, like I said, happy or sad, I eat, you know, lonely or in a crowd, I eat, I, you know, I guess I can't, you know, I, I can't distinguish the true from the false. I, I like to, you know, I, I like to think of uh, and, 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 and guiding people and just in my just general, I try to base how I'm doing on my behaviors. And then after a series, after, after some time, I could look back at my experience and say, well, obviously, God is doing for me what I, what I wasn't able to do for myself. And it's almost like I land on a conclusion. But on any given day, I can get out of bed, align my will with God, and then run into another person and then be in collision. And then I'm wondering to myself, well, am I, am I being guided? Is, am I spiritual? And it's just like, I, I, you know, I, I'm, I, the, point, the point that I'm making is if we, if we use our behavior as the barometer, as the metric for how we're doing, I don't have to get all mucked up in the, in the, uh, in the in the in the feelings of whether or not I'm doing or uh, uh, whether or not that connection has been made, that that's gonna that's 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 a, that's like uh, you know what do they say like the, you know uh, it, it just it, it just is it either is or it isn't. I don't know if that I don't know if that's helpful or or, or addresses the question, but it was my best shot. And I'm sure Joe's gonna say something that I wanted to say. So go ahead, Joe. <laughs> Well, I would say ditto to what Pete said. I'll just add a couple things. The program, I mean, um, you said, Malky, that you've had a painful and lonely trans- transition in program. The program doesn't cause pain, and the program doesn't cause loneliness. If you look at the promises on pages 83 and 84, you look at what, what we are promised, and not only the promises. So the promises include things like, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. If you go through that list, you know, fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. Um, it doesn't say anything about having pain or loneliness. If you look at the other measures of what we experience in the program, we will be rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed on page 25. In the spiritual appendix in the back, we, are, have a, we have a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. Our roots have grasped new soil. They talk about that in Bill's story when he's talking about Ebby. Um, we talk about, uh, they talk about um, these people have had a revolutionary change in their way of thinking and living. Um, we've had huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. That's the language that the big book describes for what we go through when we have the spiritual transitions and transformations. It doesn't mean that we're not going to feel pain 
or that we're not going to feel loneliness. The question for us is what spiritual action are we going to take in response to it? I hear a lot of people saying in, in Overuse Anonymous things like, well, I'm only human. I hear people say things like, I'll never rise above the level of being human. I don't think that's helpful. I have a program friend, and she said this, and I just love it. She said, I don't have to be reminded that I'm a human. I have to be reminded that I'm an addict. And that's what I have to do. If I'm feeling some kind of mental pain or if I'm feeling some kind of loneliness, the question for me is, I'm in some kind of pain, I'm in some kind of loneliness. How do I use the program to move through those things? Is this a step 11 question where I'm having to think about an intuitive thought or a decision? Is it a step 10 question? Do I have a resentment or fear that I need to inventory? How do I use the program to move through those things? Every question that I ask is a spiritual question. And everything I do, say, think, believe is going to have an impact on my spiritual life. It's either going to support my spiritual life or it's going to undermine my spiritual life. So that'll pass. Thank you, Malky G, for your question. Sam S., your turn. Hey, good morning. Um, actually, my, my question is answered very beautifully. Thank you, guys. All thank you. Thank you, Sam. So our final question for the morning comes from Paula M. Good morning. Um, I wanted to ask a question. I was in OA for a long time, and um, when I went back a couple years ago, I got abstinent from day one, and I was good for three years, and then I went off, and I couldn't get back. And then I went to a convention, and I heard everybody talking about Vision for You. So I went through Vision and a big book study with somebody in four months, and now I'm ready to sponsor. And I kind of have the same question as somebody else asked. Um, I, when you're on the line and you see people talking every day, you kind of get to know you know, if, you, if there's someone that you can be at work with and you think, I mean, at least, but with, with the phone, it's a little different. So I, was, I wanted to know, is there a conversation that would be helpful to have just to say, um, you know, are you really willing to, are you, do you feel that you're a compulsive overeater and are you willing to, um, there's a lot of work that goes into this and, and I'm willing to help with the work and guide you through this, but I don't know what I'm trying to say. I'm trying to say is do you do you kind of um, interview somebody and find out where they're at and tell them that you're there to help and what do you need to know if you, if they're really willing to get started with the program? Uh, you know, again, I'll mention with you know Bill Wilson, right? He didn't he didn't get to know Dr. Bob. Right, he didn't. He didn't. Uh, he didn't stop to interview anybody. Like he, he's, he's, he's thinking to myself, I better do something to save my life. Go talk to another alcoholic. Right? We are sponsorship has nothing to do with results. It has to do with the effort and my and, and me being as the as the recovered individual me trying to carry this message, not my message, this message in this book um, to the next sick and suffering compulsive overeater. And it's up to them. Like before you can concede to your innermost self or someone can concede to their innermost self, 
there are quite a few pages that differentiate what makes somebody a compulsible reader and somebody not a compulsible reader, right? Like so, all of that, all of that is is in our literature, and they can they can figure it out. And you know, it should be good news if we're working with somebody and they come to the conclusion that they're a hard eater or they're a moderate eater, and that should be good news, right? Because then because then it frees us up to go find somebody who really needs the assistance. Um, there's, there's, you know, that, that, that it, it, and again, and it should be good news if somebody finds that they can eat like a gentleman, right? Like they, they, well, our hats are, we don't condemn people. Like, you know, I, I, I would think it would be great news if somebody told me you don't have this condition, but I know I, you know, nobody's, the, the, the funny thing about being a compulsive reader is nobody can talk you into being one. And if you are one, Nobody should be able to talk you out of out of the fact that you are one. It, it, that 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 is basically the nature of the term concede, right? I pass. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, once again, ditto to what Pete said. Um, and I would say, you know, I never know right at the beginning if someone is willing to, I mean, I can say here's what I require and here's how I sponsor. Are you willing to do all this? And But I won't know until we start, you know, are they going to do this? I, you know, I, I, have, I use a package of commitments. I, I engage the OIHAO method, um, which is a method of engaging the program of recovery. And that comes with a package of commitments. And so and I'll say, well, here's a package of commitments. Are you willing to do this? And, and they may say yes. Um, I mean, hopefully they'll say yes. You know, and, and we can begin. Um, but that's no guarantee of anything. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you how many people I've sponsored. I've sponsored so many people, I, I can't count. Um, most of them, you know, they just they don't stay in they, because the program of recovery requires this admission, you know, and it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a, or the concession, it requires the concession. And um, my experience is that most people who try this will not make the concession. It's just, for whatever reason, uh, it's just too big of a pill for them to swallow um, or they're not ready to, to make that concession yet. Um, or maybe I'm, you know, maybe um, I'm not the right sponsor for them. Um, sometimes I will hear similar questions, Paula, and sometimes I wonder if what's underneath the question is just, it's just a wonderment of mine. Is, is there a concern that you, you don't want to take a risk? You don't want to take a risk working with someone who may not be ready. My experience is that sponsorship is always a risk because I don't know, you know, I don't know what the outcome is going to be. What I know is that I have to sponsor. That's what I know. Um, and so it's uh, you know I need to I need to flex my sponsorship muscles for my own survival in recovery. So if someone's willing, then hey let's let's get started and then we work out the sponsor sponsee relationship as we go. So I hope that helps. I pass. I, I just want to add one thing to that question, Paula. And this is something that I think you know that that a lot of this happens. I don't. I don't think it's appropriate for me as a sponsor to sponsor somebody that's already gone through the process and is and, is, and is, who is essentially recovered, but just decided they want to go through the process again. Like there is a shortage of, 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 of qualified recovered sponsors out there. And I'm sure that, you know, the God, well, I, well I'm not sure. I think the God of my understanding would have, would have me working with somebody who is desperate and, and, and dying because of the, because of the ingesting these substances and, and, and as a recovered individual, 
I should be able to go through this process relying on my network of resources versus, you know, locking down a sponsor to take me through it again. Cause for some reason I think I, I need to do it again and that I'll, and I'll pass with that. Thanks Paula M for your question. Thank you to all who posed questions this morning. And again, thank you, Pete B. and Joe M., for your service this morning. Thanks for your outstanding and illuminating presentations on the allergy of the body, obsession of the mind, the double whammy. Thank you so much. Uh, today's share ID, 14,884. That's 14884. We're going to close from page 164. You'll notice it's in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others this is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.